You're listening to the Thread Wellbeing Podcast, connecting people from around the globe to share about living from their soul's purpose. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our deepest respects to Elders past, present and emerging from all First Nations around the world, from whom we learn so much. Today's inspiring conversation is with Dr. Favadan Deliri, OAM, an internationally renowned artist. Welcome listeners. Today we have an incredible guest joining us who is about to share on so many topics that Teresa and I are super excited. Dr. Favadan Deliri, OAM, who is an internationally renowned artist, an Iranian refugee and a master educator. Pavadan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kat and Teresa. I wanted to start. Uh, there are so many pieces to you that we are so excited to jump into. However, could you tell us where you are right now? So you're in Townsville, but could you paint us a bit of a picture of what you're doing there? Uh, I'm in Townsville right now in the the premises of the Townsville Intercultural Center. And uh, this is sort of in my office, which is 24 hours office when I'm here. And uh, here is the yard in front of which it's a big busy road, Nathan Street. The other side is McDonald. And on our front yard by the road, we have got giant sculptures of huge uh, monuments like the Rainbow Serpent, the Jonathan Thurston, our football hero, uh, Slim Dusty, the country music uh, legend, uh, King Bundagol, Aboriginal elder legend, Mother Earth, uh, and Aboriginal lady matriarch that we modeled with a huge uh, with, uh, with Mother Earth as her as her belly. So there, uh, and then we got a few of them that they're like lined up. They're pretty much famous in town. Everybody wants to come to this area. Oh, where the big statues are. So. Here I am, and I'm planning for the Harmony Day, which is tomorrow. And we have invited community stakeholders and traditional owners to come here for, for morning tea and lunch, have a yarn about how can we improve uh, uh, community harmony, cohesion, and race relation and, and, and equity in our region, and reflecting and sharing, and also planning the Townsville Cultural Fest, which is part of the, the, uh, the Carnival of Joy in August 1415 in Townsville. We are so excited by what you're sharing. Catherine and I in the background saying, we are visiting you, we are coming to Townsville. I loved how you were sharing the statues that you have out the front. You talked about Rainbow Serpent. Um, please share with our listeners a little bit about the Rainbow Serpent. Yeah, the, the Rainbow Serpent is uh, the uh, Aboriginal mythology the spiritual mythology of Aboriginal people generally is uh, represented through the concept of rainbow serpent. And uh, it is not localized, uh, but so many Aboriginal people relate to it. And <clears throat> it's a story is a story of their creation, meaning that the Aboriginal perspective on creation starts with few mythological stories that they go far, far back. And they are so meaningful and, and so, uh, so, uh, educational when you hear these stories. So when uh, this uh, rainbow serpent that we have in front was created by me within, in, with the support of Aboriginal 
uh, community and painted by Aboriginal artist Karen Doolan. And actually it is like a, about 30 meters long snake turning around Mother Earth. And then the, on the top of the Mother Earth, there's a flame coming like the Earth is burning out, but the rainbow serpent is trying to protect it. So, um, so the idea is that rainbow serpent was the spirit of creative, the creative spirit also is the protective spirit. So that's what I was told by so many Aboriginal friends that eventually those initial values and uh, concepts that they have had and they are, have been totally pushed out of the way, <laughs> they are the one that they will be uh, useful, which is the baseline of the spirituality. What an incredible honour to be able to create this and to collaborate with the Indigenous people and, and have the community sort of come together for one statue. And I am curious, in Iran, do you have a similar story of creation? Yeah, mythology, it goes back to, to uh, pre-Islamic uh, era and thousands of years ago, you're talking about, we had the bird, which was a uh, phoenix. We call that Seymour, which is like 30 birds. Seymour sees for 30 and 30 birds, but actually it was a phoenix, a huge bird that was the savior protector uh, in our mythological stories. I've not heard that. Thank you. That's amazing. And I think the, the phoenix, you know, rising from the ashes and, the, and that there's a collective as well. So could you take us back? You, you've been a, across a lot of projects and we, we will delve into it, but could you take us back to a little bit of your essence, Favarden. So when you were a child, did you have this sort of innate creation within you? What, where did creativity and artistry and all of this sort of start to come in for you? Uh, I never thought of myself when I was going to school. I never thought of myself as an artist. And uh, art for me was just a way of having fun. And then one day uh, I was in grade three and I found a piece of chalk that teachers used to write on the blackboard. And then with my pen, I started carving a head under, the, under my desk. And the teacher noticed me, I'm just being very naughty. And then he came around me and caught me, said, what are you doing there? And he just pulled me out. It was a face which was resembling him. And he looked around to everybody, said, look at him. He has made a head out of this chalk and he's going to be an artist one day. I'm telling all of you, take notice of him. Although he's being naughty, but I admire his work. <laughs> yeah, the other day, one of my teachers again, grade four, uh, asked everybody to draw uh, a picture about the lesson that she gave about waterways and how rivers connect to the ocean. So I went home and, and found some large papers and, and put a, a, a drawing together, which was, I mean, I thought that fine, that's how it is anyway. I took it to the school and this teacher was over her, you know, over the moon, oh my God. And then they put it out in the class and talked so much about it. And so who did it? I said, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's basically my story of my early, 
realization. And then when I saw my dad actually once that he did oil paint, he did two oil paintings in his life as a part of his own therapy. And then he had oil paints, which was very expensive for my time. At that time, I could never have my hands on them other than basically pen, paper, and stuff like that. So I started basically stealing his paints and, and, and using whatever I could to mix them and paint them till one day my aunt uh, uh, bought me a set of paints and then said, you should paint yourself and as a gift. So, and I made a painting and then as a return, as returning the favor, she was so happy and she put it in her very rich, very big house, you know, palatial decoration. She put it on up in her main drawing room and said, this was done my, my, by Fabertin. And I realized that, okay, I can do stuff. So let me do it. And then since then I started depending on my art for survival, for books, for uh, favors. And so I used to paint and, and ask favors. Uh, for people ch exchanging for food and then sometimes people even paid money for it till I finished my schools. I went to India for science to study science after I basically ran away from the persecutions um, as, as a young uh, teenager Baha'i. So in India I discovered through a lot of hardship which I have actually given my story into my book I think I should not think I, in, it took me about a year and a half to discover the fact that that nothing in this world is worth doing other than going within yourself and finding who you are. Because everything that you want to do, something will happen, somebody will do better, and eventually there is no justice after. In India, I was very much affected by the extreme of the poverty and disparity between the rich and poor. And, uh, and Still, it is a commonplace knowledge that people know uh, what happens there with the poor people. And that really, really changed me in terms of my view of the world, creation, justice, God, everything. Why it's happening? Why nobody basically does anything about it? As a young person, I was very affected. And so I dropped science, everything. So my idea was that if science is not helping this, then what is it good for? Going to Mars is not going to help us. Because I was very enthusiastic in science, in physics, loved, still I do. And then basically art became my, 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 my lifesaver, made me want to live, made me want to do something for people rather than just use my knowledge to make something out of people, which is the norm for today's society. People are there to produce a result for somebody else. But Art actually reverses that you do something for people. And that was my, then that basically saved my soul, saved my, 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 my zest for life, saved my purpose. And then since then, I'm talking about when I was in not 70, 75 and six, I went to Lucknow Arts College and I immersed myself totally in art, whether I had something to eat or not, whether I had, you know, any, you know, sense of purpose or not. Painting day and night for me was just the way of living and everybody loved it. Used to go to the villages, paint the, you know, the villages head and then everybody comes, oh, look, nobody has done and paint the, the poor fellow, paint, paint the rich fellow. And then everybody brings food. For me, art became it at that point in time. What a beautiful story, Varden. And 
there's so much joy in your art, in the giving of your art, in what you've just shared. Like your art actually gives joy and your art shares stories. And you touch on so many concepts that we all are confused, even, even this day, even at my age. Like you think about science, you think about spirituality, you think about God. Only this morning I sent a message to a friend saying, you know, we are so aware of the caste systems or the people that we think are the untouchables that is just that feels so unjust and you just touched on that with what you shared about India but through your art you bring everyone back to this level play field that everyone can enjoy and as I was looking into your story I noticed some of your artwork which is profound but what I felt that your art shares your journey when I was looking at some of your pieces, I saw a beautiful piece of a young boy sitting alone. And I wondered if that was your story back in Iran or when you actually came out as a refugee. Mm. Then I noticed another piece of art and I want to go, I, I do want you to talk to us about that one. There's two pieces I want you to talk to me about. There's some others that are of beautiful archways, stairways and light. So speak to us, please. Um, and for our listeners, you can see these pieces of artwork under Dr. Favardin's um, website. Speak to us about those two pieces in particular, the one of the little boy that's sitting alone and the one of the arch with the light. Yeah. The one that, the one that uh, had a, a child sitting alone, there are three of them. And then uh, one is the child sitting in a field where are too many stone pillars. Yeah, that's one. The second one was the one that a child sitting in a, well, like a doorway that the door is crashing downward. The last one was the one that was going over the stairs while, while there was some light at the end. So this was, those three of them are story of one child. And uh, my friend who was a, a, a D-miner or mine uh, diffuser, uh, a, a very, uh, very uh, respectful, dignified uh, Australian ex-army uh, uh, who joined uh, the UN's uh, team of removing mines from the fields in Afghanistan. And then he told me the story when we set up a, a, a anti-mine campaign in Townsville, uh, he with him actually, with his support. He brought uh, stories and, 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 and photos and stuff about this particular boy whose parents were basically destroyed over the mines because when they want to go and, and uh, cultivate or they want to uh, do things in their village, which has been uh, a place for the, uh, for the, as a war zone, they don't know, they just walk over. So. His, his family, they're all torn in pieces. And the last member of the family was his dad. That when he was trying to cultivate and do, do, uh, do farming, he was also blown away and brought to the hospital half dead. And he had no one else. He comes to the hospital, sits there by the hospital door. Nobody takes notice of him because the dad was inside and he didn't know what to do. Very, very basically young age. I think that he must have been around six or five or six years old, young boy. And uh, uh, my, my friend uh, uh, said that he was there for three days and he noticed him. 
and then once the dad's dead body came out of the hospital and he saw the dad is now being buried, he perished, he disappeared from there. And then he went and looked for him, he couldn't find him. And when he told that story to me, it really crashed me. So there are three paintings giving three days of that boy sitting among the, among the uh, sitting within a field of stone pillars that they're humans. They're stones for him because he can't, he can't communicate. They're no good to him. They're just people, but they are no good, no better than stones around him. The second day, there are stairs that he's still hoping that he will get there. There's light. And the last day is when the door crashes down and his home destroys and he disappears. So those three paintings were dedicated to him and the fundraising exhibition we did in Changzhou for creating awareness for the efforts of deminers in the fields and the battlefields that for most part is, is, uh, is not even noticed. I mean, wars are fought and people win or lose or die or live. And, uh, but then what is left behind every war zone is generations of generations of misery that, that who is going to pick up, who is going to pick up that. And that story is for every part, you know, the war which happened between Iran and Iraq, the war in Syria, the war in, in, in Libya, the war in Afghanistan right now. And, and you just look at all these zones, they become unlivable. They become basically the death traps for long time to come that that's a peace time. <laughs> And hardly we can manage to stop these wars. And we think when the war is to stop, okay, thanks God the war stopped there, but who is going to pick up those stories? Who is going to heal? Who is going to? So one of the reasons that art became my savior is because if I did, couldn't paint, if I couldn't tell the story or express myself, Nobody wants to listen. Nobody cares. You know, just not nobody. You know, life is so busy and threatening, and we have made so much insecure that looking to somebody else, see where they are at, where the rest of humanity is going, how is collective journeys shaping up? That becomes the last thing that people want to do. And then, so, but with the art, you can you can break that ice. You can you can. Uh, you can connect with people, making them look, you know, this is the story that you we missed. So that's keeps me going. That's really powerful. And <laughs> that was really an emotional journey you just took us on. I did not expect you to say that from those photos, uh, from, from what I saw. I, I thought they may have been more of your life, but you just allowed art to speak to us and to tell us a story that many of us are just ignorant to. And you just touch on such truth. We live and we live in this busy rat race and COVID allowed us to be still. And it, you know, and it created its own turmoil and we're all moving into a different paradigm now. But there are so many stories that we're not aware of because we are too busy being in our own story and we're too busy trying to survive our own stuff. But you just brought us to an area that speaks to everyone. 
because we know about war. Yes, we hear that it stops. Yes, if we're not directly impacted by it, it's a story and then we put it away. But you've allowed us to live this story of this young boy and, and that journey. And this is the gift that you have, is that ability to express, to express from the heart and the creativity in your fingers and in your hands, that there is a gift from God, a gift from our creator, in whatever name we want to call this energy, it is your gift. And it takes me back to now wanting to know more about who is Favarden. Off air, I asked you about your name, and I'm going to ask you now for our listeners, because there is something quite unique and magical about Favarden. And the love that you hold within you, but that is now part of your essence and is in the gift in your art and the gift of your voice and the work that you do. Favarden, tell us more about your name, your birthplace and your journey here to Australia. How did you get to bless us? Uh, I'm blessed to be here. No, I don't bless anybody. I'm just, the, I'm a traveler who pick up the gems of people's heart, people's, people's intentions, people's love, and then the, everything else, bad intention or ill feelings drops off him like a water on the dog's back. <laughs> As if, you know, you, you run in the field and pick up stuff that they smell and hang around your neck. I don't do that. And that's exactly the same with emotions. So I'm just a gypsy traveler. I've been around and will be going around. But my birthplace, yes, was Iran. I was born in a city near Shiraz, uh, central Persia. And then my name was chosen by my parents, Farvardin, which is the name of the first month of the Farsi Persian calendar, uh, which is the first month of the spring, Farvardin. So our calendar goes back, one of the, our calendar is one of the very first solar calendar, which was very accurate, predates all other calendars. And then later on, all other calendars, they started uh, using the uh, Persian uh, mathematicians and, and, and the, those that they were very well aware of the, of the cosmological changes that then they can pin down the equinox. So knowing when the equinox was in, in, in Persian uh, tradition goes back up to 10,000 years ago with the precision that never changes. And so, uh, so Favardin is the name of the month which starts with 21st March, which is the equinox, a perfect division between two hemispheres and, and perfect equality of the light and dark between the, between the night and day. And then since then in our mythology said that then since then the Northern Hemisphere start winning light, gaining light. And then they basically say it in a way that's victory of life over the light over the dark, which is not fair to the Southern Hemisphere, but still this was the understanding of the most of the globe, which was known to be on this, on the North part. So here it is, uh, nobody picks, picks that as name, very not, very unusual to be called poverty. And uh, because I was born then, so they called me Favardin. Thanks to them, such a long name. When people ask me, what is your name? I try to say, they start cursing me. What a long name. <laughs> often I joke, I say, I would, have been, I would rather be called Joe and Jack rather than Favardin. But anyway, it is okay. You know, it is a name that has some mythological meanings to do with the 
creation and and uh, and uh, power of the faith and and, and spirituality. That's Farvardin, which was Farvardin Khan in the in the old Persian language. <laughs> yeah, I was born there. I was born to a Baha'i family, which is a religious minority, and then my entire childhood was was is filled with the with the stories of being bullied, being kicked, being beaten, being kicked out of school for no good reason, being demoted from grade three to grade two because of I'm um, um, outcast. Yeah, I lived a, a life of outcast as a child, as a Baha'i child in Iran. I didn't know much about the religion then. I was just born in a family which was associated. <laughs> so it took me years later to discover what was it for which I was punished. <laughs> and then, yeah, eventually when I, I basically started being activist, based on the high principle of peace and, and, and oneness of humanity. I started spreading around brochures about disarmament and, 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 and love of humanity. I was arrested by the secret police and imprisoned and uh, in, a, in a basically, uh, you know, not a normal prison. There are a political prison where, where they torture you. So after that experience, uh, uh, they wanted to know where I get those flyers from, wh why am I doing things along the lines of Baha'i principles, which is not a, a legal, basically, belief system in Iran. And eventually, I was basically given a sentence for 25 years prison, but released on a condition that if you ever talk about these ideas, you will be back with no court for 25 years. <laughs> so I left the, the prison. Uh, with one idea that if I can't talk about these ideas, then I'll have to go somewhere where I can't talk. So my next port of call was to get to India. And then I was about 18 years old, still 18, becoming 19 when I left my country forever. And, and India became my, 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 my place where I, I basically started to understand life, understand religion, understand myself and discover. And as it happened, uh, my love for science had to give away to love for humanity and art and everything else. So I stopped studying science and went to Lucknow uh, University College of Art, very well known, and uh, spent the best six years of my life there studying art, fine art, sculpture, pottery, and, and, and uh, every aspect of art. So that's my story in India. Then I came to Australia. As a, as a refugee because I didn't have a state. I was a stateless person. Uh, I didn't have passport, visa, nothing. And uh, so I was on the point of being deported back to my country of origin. Uh, then I had to leave for Australia and I was happy that I came here. Favad, and listening to your story is so moving because it's an account that I have not heard. You know, I haven't been in the position where I've been able to hear a story similar to yours, but yours is extremely unique. And within your name, this is your journey. This is your path. So the, the dark before the spring, before the birth, and I, I'm extremely um, humbled that we get to have you on this earth I'm with us. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. There's so much in your story leading up to a point where and and the work that you have dedicated yourself to 
within the last 30 years, I think, which is community um, unity and cohesion and harmony to deliver that mission and that message from your personal journey. I, I'm indebted to you and I'd, I'd love if you could speak to, to some of the things that you, that you do within that space. Uh, it's, yeah, it's very, it's a space when you work along those lines. It gets complicated in terms of explaining why I do what I do. So a lot of people misunderstand my, my, my strategies. Like, who are you? You're an educator, you're a doctorate in education and community worker, refugee settlement, what that has got to do with, say, Kookaburra, for example. So, so it's very basically a long shot in terms of making a theoretical connection uh, in terms of why do I do what I do. I spend best part of 15 years in my life to research my PhD about the predicament or the reasons of the uh, uh, underperforming of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in the public schools in North Queensland. And I succeeded with, the, with my thesis and it was recognized as a, as a very, very uh, good research by my examiners. And I basically became a doctorate in, uh, uh, in philosophy focused on their curriculum for Aboriginal children and showing how can we improve. But then nobody wanted to listen to how can it be improved. Meaning that my research is still sitting there untouched, unexplored. And uh, I had to go and fight to publish this, that politics of academic world about, you know, who gets what. And I'm not into that. So it is very complex when you start setting out a journey for change and, and finding and then want to implement. It's not that easy. Even in multiculturalism, for example, uh, are we really removing the barriers? Are we really moving towards cohesion? Or are we creating more individual barriers in the name of multiculturalism, it gets not basically that straightforward. But in one nutshell is that when we talk about unity, it has to be inclusive. When we talk about cultural diversity and acceptance, it should be unconditional inclusiveness. Meaning that as soon as you said cultural diversity and acceptance, then I don't mentally rule out, okay, those people in the outback, those so-called mainstream, they don't need that. Oh, Aboriginal people, they have got their own things to work with. No, I've got only this, this compartmentalization, mental separation of people in different pockets itself is defeating the purpose of what we is, want to achieve with respect to cultural diversity and harmony. Because what we do, we separate people based on what we understand. They don't need this thing, they're okay. Those people, are, they've got a different issues. They've got a land issues, nothing to do with us. And then, oh, see that is, oh, they have been here long enough now. They've been here 60 years or 70 years. They're not really too much into the cultural diversity now. So we do those things. And as a result, the strategies becomes localized, symptomatic treatments rather than holistic healing of human state of mind and heart in terms of acceptance unconditional acceptance unconditional 
nothing should come in between me and the next human being of any sort that would create a judgment in me that uh, I, that's okay, I don't have to connect over there. That should be taken completely out of equation. And I don't want to give you examples because then the game, that's it, but you have to try to put yourself in that mindset. When we say acceptance, diversity, harmony, that should be so pure and so inclusive, so innocent, that nothing should be left outside of that circle. And for years, we talked about cultural diversity, multicultures, without having indigenous people in, included, their struggles, their stories, their narratives. I'm talking about decades. Now, recently, things are slowly moving from the multicultural package or narrative. We are trying to say, okay, we need to actually have in mind that they are there before us. But this wasn't there before, for example. Anyway, to cut the story short, art for me is a way of bypassing all these complexities, theoretical positionings, political who gets what. Feel at the basic fundamental level, appreciate and share. And Kookaburra did just that. And whether you're an Aboriginal person, uh, whether you're a newly arrived refugee, and or whatever in between, right? Everybody liked that. Everybody joy was overjoyed to see something laughing. Everybody was laughing with it. Nobody cried. So why did you do that? <laughs> so that is where basically I use art, like the way I did the painting of that kid in, in Afghanistan who, who perished after his parents were destroyed over the mine, himself was perishing in society as an orphan. Okay, I had to tell that story and that bypasses all its politics, for war, against war, patriotism, for all of that puts aside one kid was left helpless and we let that one kid down, one child of the universe was let down and I was blessed, I was honored to have that story handed to me by, uh, by my good friend firsthand and I was responsible to respond. So my way of doing art is about addressing those social issues somehow, somewhere along the line. Not making a cockatoo, the giant cockatoo that I'm making. I, use crowdfunding for that, that cockatoo is going to be a token cockatoo. And everybody loves cockatoo. People think that's one of the iconic symbolic Aussie birds, but then they will be surprised to see that that Aussie bird will be greeting in many different languages. <laughs> and saying stuff, good stuff. So then, okay, fine, so Aussie icon, but can say namaste, can say, stuff that you know you wouldn't usually hear it as as a part of the aussie you know vocabulary but so be it then yeah that's one way of being aussie <laughs> and i consider myself to be aussie <laughs> oh we consider you to be an aussie Pavard, and it's so beautiful what you share i love the courage with which you speak you know, and it's so important to really talk about unity and oneness and this unconditional acceptance. And, and I always use that word, unconditional love. And Kat and I have also been discussing this and we are going to have a panel, which we will invite you to, to further this discussion. This is something that we have been scratching at the surface and understand, we understand it's complex. And we understand that there are many issues involved in it. But we also understand and see the importance of really 
having this message heard about oneness and connection and unity and humanity one in humanity and we will definitely explore all of that there is so much more i want to uh, talk to you about that and we will definitely do that in the panel i do want to talk about the kookaburra but i think before i go to the kookaburra because i think the kookaburra you know with the laughter of the kookaburra and the story of the kookaburra i want you to share more i just want to take you one step back you talked about you being in the prison camps or in, in, in prison and in the torture perspective of it how do you get yourself out of there how do you let that life go and be in the now you've got a beautiful clip when is now and when do i exist that is so powerful could you speak to us about how relevant is that and that mindset that you need? And is that what you've had to do to let go of some of the trauma and the grief? Because you represent joy. To look at you, you are joyful. You share with such love. And that doesn't mean that your story hasn't had pain. But you don't offload that pain to anyone. You come from this space of just love and light. Speak to us about your concept of mind and the present moment. Yeah, it took me a long time. Uh, Teresa, when I left my home country for India after the experience of being uh, in prison and tortured, all that was wasn't for a long time, and then I was lucky to be released on bail uh, after my sentence. And then I was so lucky to be able to leave uh, the country that, you know, I didn't want to go back with so many nightmares of my childhood. You know, my childhood is torn in pieces with all the memories of, of never had a friend, never had someone who would know me, but come to me, say, look good on you because of that, being out, outcast religion as a Baha'i, still, even these days, Baha'is don't have a right to education, don't have a right to legal system, don't have a right to any protection in, in the Iran. Right now we're talking about. So when I left that country, uh, I was just uh, someone who was suffering the, the, the post-traumatic symptoms. And, uh, and I started developing severe uh, random sense of panic and anxiety. Uh, and fear of unknown for a long time. And then one of the reasons that art became my refuge was just that, but it wasn't that easy. It, it is not that I started painting, I felt okay. I studied, I studied myself. I invented the textbooks. And then only when I came to Australia, when I landed on the Tasmanian beach in Alverston, uh, after a decade of suffering that constant sense of fear of being hit by unknown, because I was kidnapped on the road actually. It wasn't an arrest, it was a kidnap. I was taken by violence from the bus station where I was waiting to meet somebody. And then uh, eyes basically blindfolded and being hit and, 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 and injured while I was being driven to an unknown location. And it took me about a couple of hours till I realized these are the secret police. Uh, so that, trauma and with the years of childhood uh, victimization as uh, untouchable, literally untouchable. You go to the uh, 
a neighborhood and, and then you touch somebody or get somebody's toy and the mother comes and takes and the toy away and washes it. So that was my basically memories. But then when I went to India and then didn't have that much, to, what you call the professional help, uh, I was basically trying to self-help myself with art. Uh, and I married, I had even a young uh, child born to my family uh, in Lucknow Hospital. And, but when I left and I arrived in Australia, I was hoping that I will get shared everything, all the insecurities, all the problems, not from Iran, not from India, because in India I was not supported by my government or anybody. In India, I had to sell art and survive. And it is not easy for someone who is from somewhere else to survive in India economically, support his family and himself. So after all that hardship, then coming to Tasmanian coast and sit on the beach, then I found that the whole thing is in me. There's nothing out there. It was, but not now. But right now, all the surge, all the sudden feel of anxiety, all the panic that comes from the unknown, being afraid of dark, being afraid of graveyard, being afraid of the unpredictables, all of that at the age of 30, I discovered they're all in me. And then, uh, and then I started working, stepping backward and trying, instead of focusing outside, trying to fix outside things so that nothing disturbs me, I started working inside. I studied, I, I researched, and it took me another 10, 15 years till I actually arrived at the awakenings that I have explained in my book, I think I should not think. It's on Amazon. I then those awakenings led me to position where I could say I exist now. And what you hear on those clips, they're after the final awakenings, after decades of suffering, but after reading the neurology, psychology, researching, experimenting on myself, hearing other people. And, and now I can say that uh, in me is a temple and this temple is every day cleaned of every ill feeling, every, every trace of, of, of bad memory, every uh, fear, I wash this temple. And then I sit and meditate with every joyful thing which is out there, which I can experience and everything which I can give to others and give them joy. And that is also my my experience or my intention so the intention is shifted from what about me whether i get this or not is shifted what is it i can do in next you know years of my life that is worth doing so the the short story is that yes i had to write a book about it and i shared my findings with people that they know me started running meditation self-awareness sessions for free with the food on the top from here from this office for years, I was doing that, and I realized that there's so much need out there. Now, with the kookaburra, when we go around there and laughing, then we go laughing session. We talk, actually, I talk to kids at the school about, yes, this kookaburra has a message. You can choose to laugh and be joyful, and you can fake it till you make it. <laughs> and this is how we are made. The, the piece where you said that you've got this temple within you, is so moving and is so needed to hear and thank you for the reminder for those who are who are listening and and 
as we were saying before, that can get stuck in their own head. And there's all these multi layers to how we operate in this world, but to truly go within and, and to reconnect with that temple. So I just have to say a, a very big thank you to you for shedding your light with it from that temple space, you know, and it, it's in everything that you, that you do and you've been deemed a master teacher and I know why. <laughs> the Carnival of Joy. Could you please share with us what, what that is, when it's coming, how can we get involved, how can we support you? Yeah, okay. The Carnival of Joy is now a replacement for the Townsville Culture Fest that as a result of COVID-19 and lack of funding and, and, and support, we can do the similar festivals. If you have checked Townsville Culture Fest, you can see we used to bring together tens of thousands of people with the headline acts, people like Xavier Rudd, like Baker Boy, like Jessica Maboy. They have been a some of few of our headline acts in the past few years, we can't do that anymore. One, no funding, no economic stamina within the business sector to support you, no government support. So, and then we can bring people together in large numbers. COVID, COVID uh, uh, safety uh, applications is expensive. It's not possible for small agencies. So what we do, we do Carnival of Joy. We make them in Brisbane. We create fundraising in Brisbane like uh, the couple to raise crowdfunding uh, 22 grand to make it. Now I'm almost halfway through making it. Then the couple to, with the, all the movements of the head and the crown and the nice talkings, followed by a giant uh, kookaburra and the giant koala that you saw it over there. And these three, uh, they will lead a, a carnival of joy from Brisbane to Cairns and back to Brisbane. As you know, Dinesh, uh, the Australian of the year uh, from Queensland is ambassadoring this because he says basically story of survival, resilience and clinging to joy as opposed to the sorrow and despair is what he symbolizes. He manifests himself that. So that's where the connection between my thinking and this project and him comes about. He is the man who knows how it is done at the depth of all the disappointments, like that physical disappointments that he suffered, he rose from the ashes. So he's the teacher, not me, right? If he wanted to teach from, learn from someone, that's the niche. And people like him, I choose as teachers, as gurus, because they live the experience. And of course, I have my experiences, but it's just not enough, you got to go. So we are going to go to every council and tell them you can have a reception. You can co-sign the letter of Dinesh, his media release about why we should get, cling together and create joy for each other and then move on. And we are doing about 8,000 kilometers, Brisbane, Cairns and back, coastal town and inland over six weeks. And we, then in Townsville, we have 14 different festivals simultaneously in a small groups around town and the carnival of joy goes and connects one to the other. And uh, so that's the sketch. Rest of it, you just follow. And for Varden, when is this, what are the dates for this particular event? We are going to, hoping to kick off the carnival on the uh, second week of July from Brisbane, arriving to Townsville the uh, second week of August then going to Cairns and going back to Brisbane by 
by early September. And do you have anyone reporting on this? I think the thread, Kat and I, will be attending this event and we will have to record live. I don't have any media ambassador at this point. There are a lot of local medias that love to hear back from us. All these radio stations on the route last year from Kukubara's journey, they're so excited to talk about it again. But we don't have anything central, which is any arrangement with anyone at this stage. Favadin, you spoke about chosen ones. And yes, I totally agree with you, Dr. Dinesh and his story and what he's here to do. And, and when I heard his interview a few months back and he just started that interview on the project here with I am grateful, I knew then that we had a very special human amongst us who could rise from that and Dr. Favarden, you too are a chosen one. You cannot go through life and, and what you've led and yet still stand for oneness, stand for love, stand for integration and connection. There are paths that we all have that are all different to one another. And there's journeys that we take. And one of the things I often say to people, and you started our interview with this, and I always say to people, we're just all traveling companions. Sometimes I will help, you know, pick up your luggage, your baggage, just for a while while you get tired and then you'll get yours back. And then I continue my journey and we meet at crossroads and then we go back on our individual journeys. Sometimes we meet at a destination, you know, and this is how connections occur. This is how soul families reunite and I love that you started our interview with that, that you're just a traveling gypsy. Well, guess what, Favarden? You've met two other traveling gypsies here. And that is what we terminize and we, you know, use that terminology for ourselves. We're just traveling gypsies. We go with the flow. People use labels all the time. What is it that we do? Well, we just do what we know we're here to do without labeling it. And we don't need to label it because we follow a different direction. There's a connection, there's a spirit message, we just flow with it. And we trust and we surrender. And we love what you are doing. We love that you have allowed us to come into your world and share with everyone else. Well, it's absolutely mine, I can assure you. Look forward to talk to you again anytime. And then uh, I'm very much humbled and uh, you're a real saint. And Catherine is a real a kind person to be so generous towards me. And uh, let's see if we can do something together for others. <laughs>